welcome to Edutechnicalities, a podcast dedicated to the trends and topics facing higher education. My name is Roland Moe, and I am your host for our special series on Emerging Scholarship. This seven-part series provides a deep analysis on the conceptualization, generation, and dispersal of knowledge and its relationship to the academy, be it the professoriate or the relationships between education and the community. Our hope is to highlight the progressive and congruent work happening in scholarship, as well as signpost opportunities to support this production and dissemination in traditional spaces such as academic disciplines, campus departments, and institutional promotion, tenure, and review. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Brian Alexander, the Chief Executive Officer of Brian Alexander Consulting and facilitator of the Future Trends in Technology and Education web space. Brian has worked at the confluence of education and technology for more than two decades, first as an Assistant Professor of English at Centenary College of Louisiana, followed by serving as the Senior Research Fellow at the National Institute of Technology and Liberal Education. He is a prolific author, speaker, and advocate for the thoughtful use of technology in educational practice. Brian and I had the opportunity to speak several months ago as part of a professional development series for Seattle Pacific University, and I wish to preface this conversation here by noting this interview and another one in our series were not recorded with the podcast in mind, so please forgive the sound quality but enjoy the content. It was a particular pleasure to interview Brian, as I was an undergraduate student of his during my time at Centenary College, an English major with no thoughts of a future in technology or education. Yet here we both are today. You are a doctor of English literature, yet your position today is as a futurist in educational technology. It's a pretty pretty wide berth between the trained discipline of the University of Michigan and the practical work that you you do on a day-to-day basis. So I'm interested in hearing about your academic journey prior to finishing your doctorate. Technology from your CV and from the work that uh, you've published has always been a part of what you've done. So we have to go back to the 20th century in order to do this. And one key part of this was the realization of the materiality of literature. Uh, Thinking about uh, what we now call the history of the book, the importance of publication, and how that shaped audiences as well as uh, creators as they tried to shape texts in different multimedia forms for different audiences. So that was a subject of um, a great deal of scholarly interest for me. And that connected very smoothly with uh, what was then emerging digital technologies in all kinds of ways, partly because I thought at a disciplinary level that the emergence of the web was something that English as a discipline should be all over, because it was the emergence of a new field for reading and writing which I would think literature is pretty keenly interested in. Uh, and we've slowly been catching on to it. But just as, as a critical field of inquiry, uh, I think that was uh, a major connection. And I started teaching in that. But the f- second class I taught wholly by myself at the University of Michigan as a grad student was uh, involved partly on critical approaches to technology. At the pedagogical level, I discovered pretty early on that I could use technologies to improve the way my students wrote, the way they thought about texts, and the way they kept it with each other. So this is back in the early and the mid-1990s, so a lot of the technologies would now seem arcane, if not primitive. I taught some of my students Unix file permission uh, systems in order for them to be able to exchange files with each other. Uh, They did a basic reply all through email in order to get draft uh, composition text back and forth. Uh, We did early web searching. Uh, I had them use uh, multi-user text uh, adventures and um, settings called MUDs and MOOS. I had some of them use very, very early VR uh, developments 
you know, it, and including with uh, older technologies like BBSs in different forms. I, swiftly, I found through experiment that there were a lot of benefits uh, in all kinds of ways. My favorite example is uh, I found as a writing instructor that it was easy to get my students to think about writing at a global top level. You know, if they looked at a, a professional essay, they looked at one of their colleagues' essays, they could say, oh, I liked that or I didn't like it. It gave me this impression or I had this overall problem with it. But what was hard was to get them to drill down to the level of paragraph or the level of sentence to do in literature close reading. Uh, I found that by breaking texts up into digital form and letting students intervene in them at a line level, that they turned their perception around 180 degrees. They immediately began intervening at the level of word choice, of grammar, of sentence construction. And so for me, that was a simple and immediate win uh, for pedagogy. That's actually the first article that I uh, published was uh, about that topic. So I, I think at a disciplinary level, I thought literature made an, a, a whole series of connections, and I thought pedagogically, uh, literature made a whole series of connections. And again, this is back in the 1990s when the technology was much more challenging, uh, much harder to use, much harder to teach, and not nearly as well supported, uh, a very, very different world. And uh, I think I've hewed to that ever since. Thinking about your relationship in the scholastic field, your dissertation, your writings on Gothic literature, where for you was the connection between this emerging focus on technology in the classroom and what you saw happening in your academic discipline and what was expected of you as a student and then moving into what was expected of you as an assistant professor? I defended my dissertation in 1997, and at that point, in the humanities, technology was considered pretty strange. This was before the advent of the digital humanities, per se, and it was definitely an outlier. It would be like studying formal linguistics for literature, or uh, studying something very, very precise, like theater of New York in the 1950s. And so that, at a professional level, helped set me apart, both in uh, job interviews, as well as in a general professional career that you know you could find hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of people with similar academic credentials to mine in terms of the their academic pedigree and the courses they studied and the types of dissertations they wrote my dissertation wasn't about technology at all it was about the doppelganger in uh, romantic era fiction but the technology was a real that really set us apart uh, in many ways so just on a professional basis that was uh, very very fruitful as an assistant professor I was hired in part to do that kind of work. Uh, I was expected to do my research and teaching and service as all assistant professors, but to intertwine into them uh, to different degrees, the use of technology. And so that was both in my own work, in my own classes, in my own research, but also to help with the campus, to help other faculty and eventually to help the library and IT departments in their ways of thinking about and, and using technology. That, that was not without difficulty. That was very challenging. I, I think a disciplinary basis, it was still seen as uh, pretty strange. I did develop one long-term research interest. I was fascinated by the ways that we applied, that we feared or developed anxieties around digital technology. And I saw that playing out in multiple venues. Uh, sometimes it was in fiction, be it print fiction or film. Sometimes it appeared in journalism um, or even in governmental policy. And I was fascinated by that, and I've written about that. I have a long gestating book project on that, and uh, it's one that has only recently come into popular focus with our growing dismay about the power of social media giants such as Facebook and Google. 
that let me neatly bridge my interest in Gothic literature and critical theory with uh, the technology. You mentioned that the your hiring as an assistant professor was in part, or you know, along with teaching service and scholarship, to be a campus expert on the integration and synthesis of, of technology for faculty, for students, for the library and IT. And you mentioned that was not without difficulty. As a student of yours, I remember some of the projects you led, including all first-year students having their own website, uh, whether that was done through HTML or Netscape Composer at the time. Um, I remember helping you with building a multi-user dimension. Um, I remember changes in the first-year experience curriculum, pretty widespread changes uh, in the manner in which students engaged with one another and the, the material. Not everything from my perspective as a student that you were working on turned out successfully. And I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on what was said your responsibilities were and the things the university wished to do upon your hiring and how that played out in reality. Uh, what were some of the, the opportunities that came about that and some, what were some of the obstacles of trying to change a private liberal arts southern college's perspective on technology and teaching. If I were closer to the event, I would have to plead the fifth or maybe uh, <laughs> you know, uh, cite an NDA. But, but, but seriously, there, there were mostly issues that, were, that came out of institutional development uh, and the kind that you see in academia that contextualize our work and we work in good faith. So, for example, there's always a question of support. Uh, how can we, with limited budgets, afford certain tools and certain developments? And so that was always a challenge. Uh, and it might, at times it could have been bandwidth. And I know that in one class, uh, I really pushed for video conferencing. That was in 1999, and we ran into some bandwidth problems. I know that in another class, I deployed an experimental bit of software that no one was using at the time and ran into some firewall issues. So those are the, those are the kinds of, of practical limits you could have on the IT side. I know on the library side, we had the problems because the, uh, the library at that college was, was experimenting with fusing the IT and library shops into one unit, and they were having issues with that, uh, which is not unique. Uh, everybody had issues. It's a very, very difficult fusion to bring off. And in fact, since then, I believe the total number of institutions that are actually synthesizing library and IT departments have declined. And there are some issues. So, for example, what would happen to what was then called bibliographic instruction, what we now call information literacy. And that became, in the library's point of view, less and less in demand, partly because of the sense that we'd be moving rapidly into the digital world. So I helped with that. I, I won a grant to do some instruction in uh, information literacy and ended up doing some work with fantastic students, uh, doing workshops. And you mentioned the first year uh, seminar, the first year experience. We integrated information literacy across the uh, entire first year experience, which is really a really exciting move to do. There are also other challenges um, having to do with time. At that college, we were teaching a 4-4 level, um, and that would be three or four preps at a time. Uh, and so it was a challenge for me to avoid overcommitment. I would have a fantastic idea, I'd be playing it out, it'd become more challenging. I remember learning or trying to learn JavaScript because I had a great idea for a website. And that was just something I didn't have time to pursue fully. 
um, I didn't have any support for that in, in human support. There was no one training me. That there wasn't a JavaScript person I could rely on. And that just took way too much time, and I had to scale that back. And there are all kinds of problems that occur that are now familiar to us in the digital world. For example, uh, relying on a website which suddenly ceased to exist, um, having to come backup strategies for that. But there's a lot of improvisation. Uh, I'll give you uh, one of my favorite improvisation stories. Uh, I was teaching a class in multimedia literature. This is a, a wonderful class. I enjoyed it immensely. It was a class that would use analog and digital multimedia at the same time. So, for example, we would do a week on page layout. So I would teach the students HTML. They would look at web pages and how web pages would integrate text, sound, visuals, and so on. And then we would also read William Blake's illuminated books from the 1790s and the early 1800s, looking at how he was able to combine these. Uh, another week, we would take a look at digital audio. So we would talk about how digital audio worked in games and their websites, and then also look at classic radio theater from the 1930s. So we were doing that unit in this very, very nice classroom. A uh, very well-appointed multimedia classroom. When suddenly in came the president of the college with a handful of trustees, president who I knew said, "Don't mind us. We're just checking out the classroom." And I kind of froze as an assistant professor, thinking, "Oh my gosh, I'm suddenly on the spot with these trustees. What do I do?" Looked at the trustees, realized that they were of a certain age, and I gambled. I turned to the class and said, "All right, we were talking about radio theater. I just want to play a quick clip from the Orson Welles." version of War of the Worlds and played on the speakers the opening 10 minutes of uh, that great, great radio play. And the students listened to it. They'd never heard it before and they were fascinated by this. I looked at the trustees. One of them was tearing up. Another one looked shocked and another one was, was clearly amazed. I think the first two either heard the radio play at the time of broadcast or they heard it soon afterwards in rebroadcast. Now they heard that coming through the World Wide Web. And before I could start talking to them about this, the president said, okay, looks good, time to go. See you later, Brian, and, and took them off. Pure improv, it obviously made an impression. Um, I hope it was a good impression. But that was, that was the age of improvisation. Now we're in 2018, we're at a stage where educational technology is a fully-fledged profession with people getting masters and PhDs and different forms of it with plenty and plenty of, of scholarly peer-reviewed as well as informal literature, everything from monograph to scholarly articles to multimedia presentations. So really, in many ways, the, the field has matured. Did you find in your work the successes around incorporating technology into the classroom and working with the university to have a more cohesive strategy, working with faculty, working with IT, the library, experimenting, building the bicycle as you're riding it. Any struggle in kind of the traditional governance and infrastructure of what was expected of faculty member in terms of promotion, tenure, review? So there was a lot of negotiation. And again, that's, that's not unusual for a young assistant professor trying to grapple with the transition from being a graduate student to being a faculty member. At certain times, my work branched off into unusual places for a lot of my colleagues. So, for example, the provost of the college asked me to help develop a copyright policy uh, for the college. Now, I wasn't and I'm not a lawyer. At first glance, that seems like an unusual request for an English professor, but I had been studying copyright, and 
my graduate work and my dissertation were in the 18th century is when copyright was invented by the British and reinvented by the United States. So I felt some intellectual connection, and I dove deeply into copyright law, copyright theory, which is endlessly fascinating. I mean, it has all kinds of terrific implications and connections with all kinds of issues from postmodernism to how we think about creativity to economics. I mean, it's a very, very deep topic. I ended up publishing on this, and my colleagues looked at this a bit askance because that was not quite what they thought I should be devoting my time to. So it's interesting. The request would come from the provost, so the top of the food chain, if you will, and the media in part through my work through technology and the library, and then it kind of went athwart my uh, traditional expectations. So that was something which I, I, I had to rein in. The high point of this for me was interviewing the great copyright scholar and lawyer, Lawrence Lessig, and publishing on that and getting a lot of attention for it. But I, I had to kind of tamp that down and, and negotiate and balance back and forth what was between different levels of expectation and different forms. Again, now that would be a different question because digital copyright is, well, it's still a shambling mess. But it's better understood. There's a lot more practice that people can draw on. And we, we weren't exactly now in 2018. We're not inventing it from scratch uh, or reinventing it from scratch. Uh, I mean, so that's, that's one example. Another example would be my work on multimedia. Literature often sees itself as the domain of text and up until recently has tended to resist the historical inclusion of text with other media. I mean, so you can go back and think about hieroglyphs, you could think about comic books, you could think about illuminated or illustrated books. There are many examples. Literature tends to, even now, it tends to see itself as alphanumeric, as uh, black and white letters on a blank page. My research in multimedia didn't always make people happy. I remember one professor saying that it was important to think of William Blake as a writer and not as a printmaker, even though his, his graphic work is world famous and world renowned. And uh, another professor told me that uh, he thought Blake was a terrible artist and didn't want to use his, his material. And these are small instances, but in many ways they are the kind of argument that you have within a discipline as to what we consider valuable study and what we don't. If you were to try and encapsulate that into a lesson or a thought for how faculty and administration can work together to have these places of negotiation as schools get larger, as there's more need on assessment and accreditation and less time for the traditional scholarly debate. What are some things that faculty who are pushing at the edges and the margins and looking at scholarship beyond discovery can negotiate without the idea that they have sacrificed rigor? Well, there are a few ways to proceed. And I'm not speaking hypothetically. I'm speaking from the historical record. One is to draw on similar work published by other scholars. We now have bodies of work of people, even endowed chairs, looking at everything from computer game studies to the sociology of the web to what happens with linguistics and human psychology. So we now have a good body of scholarship that we can point to and argue with and resist, of course, being scholarship. But that's a key part. It is in 1995 now, where a quarter, almost a quarter of the way into the 21st century, we've been doing this for a while. We can now draw on practices in terms of scholarship. The second thing is to keep in mind Boyer's admonition that we should develop a scholarship of teaching. And I think that is an underappreciated and very, very powerful field, I think, with practical benefits as well as intellectual benefits. I mean, it's one thing to talk about podcasts or whatever. In my class, 
I'm curious about what buttons to press and what permissions to do. Okay, that's that's important. And that's where educational technologists or instructional designers come in. But then we also have to think about what does it mean intellectually? What is the role of audio when we are talking about students' voices? What does it mean to combine the asynchronous product of a single audio file into, say, the synchronous live classroom or the asynchronous classes as it's experienced between class intervals. I mean, these are the intellectual questions that we need scholarship to address and work with. And it's been happening. We do have a body of scholarship on this. I don't think it gets nearly enough respect and we need to produce more of it. So, I mean, that's a, that's a second level. A third is to think strategically for smaller institutions or for smaller units within larger institutions. I think it's easier now than it was two years ago, and it's for a perverse reason. The perverse reason is the election of Trump and the fear about fake news. That has brought to mind, to everyone's mind, the complexity of the digital world, its potential harms, challenges, as well as its opportunities. And it's brought to mind that we, as academics, have to think hard about what does it mean to inhabit a digital environment and what does it mean to teach our students that. This is no longer something that is solely the province of librarians, for example, as it was with bibliographic instruction. It's not just the province of a handful of, of outlier faculty. This is not something that belongs to everyone. That's a major challenge for us. And it's one that we can't meet by declaring ourselves Luddites and avoiding the question. I think it's one that we have to engage with fully as academia. One question, I'm interested to explore this however, however you want. You've been outside of traditional ivory tower review process for faculty for a while now. Continue to publish, continue to do prolific work within discovery, teaching and learning, engagement, integration, you know, the, the entire synthesis of what, what Boyer is talking about. And you've done this largely from outside of a traditional faculty role. From that perspective, what do you see as the needs for adoption of more of what Boyer was talking about. So he wrote in 1990 about how to rethink scholarship and the Chronicle of Higher Education had an article in 2014 saying most schools have adopted Boyer's framework, but very few actually follow through on it. Being on the outside and being able to do all of this, what suggestions might you have? What do you see as the problem and how we might be able to solve it? Let me just uh, clarify my outside position for those who, who haven't seen it. For about a decade, I've worked with a nonprofit called the National Institute for Technology and Liberal Education, or Nightly. And that was a combination of think tank collaboratory that worked with up to 300 small colleges across the United States. Their goal was to help these colleges grapple with the new technologies and how to best integrate them into the liberal arts tradition. While I was inhabiting full-time this nonprofit as a staff member, uh, I worked closely with hundreds and hundreds of faculty, along with hundreds of support staff from just, at a personal level, easily 150 institutions. While I was standing outside and publishing outside, I was definitely peering in very closely and worked with a great deal of people. Since then, I started my own firm and have been doing my futures work uh, full-time. And again, I'm connecting with more and more academics from around the world, not just in the small college sector, but everything from community colleges, research ones, state universities, religious schools, military schools in the United States, as well as governments and universities in Europe and East Asia, as well as Canada and Mexico. 
so I've, I've got this, this this interesting combination uh, of, of, of background items. Peer review is a key theme that we don't want to lose sight of, and it's important to remember that peer review is a key part of the kind of academic work we're talking about. That's not always understood, in part because there is a residual sense that if it's online, it might not be peer-reviewed, which is no longer true. It hasn't been true for a while, but that, that sense is still out there. Also, the sense that if it's digital, it must be lower quality which isn't necessarily true, especially since more and more often people experience scholarship through digital forms, be it an ebook for a monograph or a PDF or e-reserves. I think it's important to remember that the apparatus of faculty working with each other, the faculty correcting each other, advising each other, arguing with each other, pushing back, creating rival schools, that's all happening. And it's important for us to join it, not invent it, because it's already there. The other thing is there's the informal side of it, what some librarians call the gray literature side. That is, we have people writing monographs. We have people writing chapters in peer-reviewed books. We have people writing peer-reviewed articles, yes. But we also have people publishing conference proceedings. We have people publishing their thoughts as blog posts or as extensive comments on blogs. We have people sharing their professional thoughts via Twitter, via podcast, via YouTube, via Pinterest. We have this huge informal aspect of professional development and scholarly communication, which weirdly is enormously influential and doesn't get a lot of attention or respect. For example, in the field of economics, a lot of debates and discussion at a very, very high level happening in the economics blogosphere have started to influence economics as a field. We've seen this with the emergence of digital humanities. The, the in-joke of DH is that it's the first social movement organized uh, wholly on Twitter. We, we've seen in many ways what Dan Cohen, the great scholar and librarian, calls a new community of scholars knitted together through social media and digital technologies. And that's, that's something to celebrate and recognize and to support in some degree. It's not necessarily peer-reviewed. Neither is a conference discussion. Neither is a hallway argument. Uh, neither is uh, a letter sent from one faculty member to another by mail in 1955. Nevertheless, it plays a key part in this community of scholars. So I think we have the formal and we have the informal. These two work together pretty smoothly, and we should continue to engage with them. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Alexander, with a Y, and on the web at brianalexander.org, which will link you to his other publishing platforms. He is the host of the weekly vlog series, Future Trends in Technology and Education, and his upcoming book with Johns Hopkins Press, Transforming the University in the 21st Century, the Next Generation of Higher Education, is expected out in 2019. Thank you for listening to this episode of Edutechnicalities. Our bumper music, No, I Can't Be Happy Here, is courtesy of Austin Myers, who you can find at ak5a.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our sponsor for this series, the Center for Faculty Scholarship and Development at Seattle Pacific University. Please join us again for the other episodes in this special series on rethinking scholarship in the 21st century, as well as the other special topics and themes that make Edutechnicalities the unique experiment in audio production that it is. My name is Roland Moe. We look forward to having you again. Goodbye.